Okay. So um, we're going to start today with a new sutta, um, the sutta on the characteristic of not-self, or I guess Bhikkhu Bodhi called it non-self um, when he translated it. But I actually first wanted to give um, just a little kind of interesting side note about our timing, which is that, um, you know, we read the sutta about the Buddha's awakening, um, which was said to take place in the, around the full moon of May. Um, that's approximately the time that it happened. And I don't think we were reading it quite then, but it was a little bit close. And the, the one that we just read, the um, uh, Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel, that discourse is said to have been spoken on the full moon of July, which is tomorrow. So we're right in the range where all these discourses are actually happening. And he um, apparently also gave the this second discourse not too long after that one. So this might be around the time of year uh, when this, a while ago, <laughs> when this discourse was actually being spoken. And um, it's actually a special day, the, the full moon of July. It's also the beginning of the Vasa for the, um, monastics where they go into retreat for approximately three months. They may not be literally on retreat the whole time, but they're not supposed to travel during that time. Not that anyone's traveling much right now, but there's a whole bunch of interesting online things happening around <clears throat> the Asalha Puja, which is tomorrow. So you might, if you're interested, you might want to catch some of those, including um, chanting of the discourse that we just read about the turning of the wheel that's often chanted in the full moon in July. So check it out if you're interested. Um, okay, so today we're going on to the second discourse, the one where all five of the Buddha's former companions, ascetic companions, end up becoming fully awakened. So Kondanya reached stream entry at the end of his first discourse. So the Dharma had been passed on. There was at least somebody else assured of eventually awakening, even though he wasn't fully awake. But at the uh, speaking of this discourse, they all became fully awakened. They all became arhats. Um, did everybody find this discourse? It's number 2259. <clears throat> okay, good. Um, I thought we would use the Bhikkhu Bodhi version, um, but I have the other one up because there's a one translation that's a little odd in the Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, so would somebody like to start reading? Thus have I heard. Okay, great, Carol. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Baranasi in the Deer Park at Isipatana. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five thus. Bhikkhus. Venerable sir, those Okay. Keep going. Yeah. Okay. Venerable sir, those bhikkhus replied. The Blessed One said this. Bhikkhus, form is non-self. For if bhikkhus, form were self, this form would not lead to affliction and it would be possible to have it of form. Let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. But because form is non-self, form leads to affliction. 
and it is not possible to have it of form, let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. Okay, great. So the language, as usual, is the typical sutta style, but maybe we're getting used to that by now. Um, so it says here that he's addressing the bhikkhus of the group of five, so that means his former companions. And then he makes this very interesting declaration as his teaching. Um, form is non-self, and that word is anatta. You may have heard it as the third of the three characteristics. And then he's going to say why. He doesn't just declare that as something that they need to believe. Um, but he then says why. And there's, he says that there are two reasons why form is not self. And what are the, what are the two qualities that he cites that shows that it's not self? Uh, Carol. Because if form were self, it would not lead to affliction. Yep, so that's one. So uh, pain, painfulness. Um, we would, if something were our true self, uh, it shouldn't be a source of pain and suffering. That's what he's saying. Yeah. Um, and then what else does he say? Um, it could be somebody else, or you can, and you can just summarize what the, or or it could be you, Carol, uh, and just you can just summarize what it says. Um, yeah. So Donna has typed in. You could create whatever form you wanted. Okay. <laughs> Good. I, I know Thank it's hard know. to it's hard to summarize when you've just read and the. Um, the language is a little bit odd. So that's a little bit why I'm encouraging us to be able to say this in natural English. You know, what does this actually say? It says, if your form were self, some kind of true self underlying everything, it wouldn't be painful and it would be controllable in some way. You could choose how it would be. <laughs> you could create it as you wanted. So those are, that's the proposition. Um, these are some of the qualities that would be expected maybe in ancient Indian culture. Maybe there were ideas floating around of the true self that we could fashion as we want and was eternally blissful, something like that. Um, I don't know if, does this work in Western culture? Would this fit your definition of something that you would call your true self? We have an awful lot of attachment to our form. We do, and we've only talked about form so far, so we'll just keep yeah. it with that. Let's yeah. be clear what's meant by form. It's the body, body. just to be clear. We have a yeah. lot of attachment to our body, and I think there really is this underlying belief that you do have control of your body and that, um, and that it should be pleasurable. Yeah. You should experience pleasure. I think you've, you've got it. Yeah. I mean, when we think about our body, it's pretty much, it's one of our most intimate possessions, if it's a possession at all, which it isn't, <laughs> but if it were, um, and for sure, we think that we control it. I mean, we're, it, it's not exactly that it's totally out of our control, but um, 
you know, and we're responsible for it, of course. And we, but my goodness, what do we have to do for it every day? Feed it and clean it and dress it and rest it and move it. And it's no end to what it needs um, in terms of daily maintenance. Uh, it's not exactly a form of bliss either. Val, did you want to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say also, it seems like people sort of, we sort of think it's an affront if we have pain or illness or our body's causing a problem. And then we, uh, many people, I mean, I see in the you know, hospital, many people think we should be able to cure everything. That's right. Why can't they fix this? I took my car in and they fixed it. I, now if I've brought my body in, they should be able to fix it. Um, yeah, we have a lot of interesting ideas about the body. And there, a lot of them are kind of challenged by these very simple statements that the Buddha makes. But yes, the attachment to the body, even just the body, is amazing. I saw you, Jill, with your hand up, but let me just add one thing that I heard in a talk yes, a few days ago by a Tibetan teacher. She said that the, um, the idea behind um, uh, wanting or grasping, you know, the sort of root of greed is, I should experience pleasure. And the idea behind the root of anger is, I shouldn't have to experience pain. And when I heard that, I thought, she's nailed it. You know, that's, those are really the kind of ideas that form around these root defilements that we have, and a lot of them concern the body. Jill, did you have something else? Well, yeah, I'm not exactly sure how this fits in, but we, our awareness of the body or our sense of the body is so limited when you think of all the systems that are going on in, in, independently and interdependently. Uh, within yeah. the, the body that we have no control over, zero, and we don't pay attention to those things. Yeah. Um, I have a wonderful quote from Lewis Thomas, who was a lovely biologist. If you'll permit me just one moment, I will try to, um, I, I'm sure I can find it relatively soon on my computer. That's um, worth reading at this point. It speaks exactly to what you were saying. I can't find it soon, I, that'll be enough. But um, Okay, I don't see it immediately. I'll have to send it to you by email or something. But it essentially talks about how he um, was terrified that he would, if he were to be put in charge of his liver, and that you know, it's like, like what if you, what if you weren't declared the manager of your liver and you had and the liver controls like well Bruce knows this better than me but it's something like two hundred different chemicals that it's responsible for uh, regulating in the body and sending out the right amount and so forth um, and so it's um, and and if you suddenly had to be in charge of getting all that balanced like consciously by tweaking little knobs it would be impossible. He said he was very glad that he was not in charge of uh, hepatic decisions. Jim? Yes. Put it a plug in for, if, probably some of you have read it, Bill Bryson's book, The Body. Amazing. Chapter by chapter going through all this. And just, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating book and shows you really what's going on inside that we have no control, whatever. And who would ever guess? It's amazing. Yeah. 
I think I've mentioned before that I did a fascinating uh, six-day dissection course one time, human dissection course, which you know, normal people like me don't usually get to do things like that. And it was um, quite, I, I learned a lot of things. <laughs> Let's just say it that way, even from a, you know, uh, a deceased embalmed corpse that we were, that we were working on. Bruce, you had a comment. Yeah, um, just to, the, the idea of that we really don't have complete control, I'd like to say, about the body. I think it raises a real issue um, for uh, many aspects of this Buddhist practice, and that is um, we do have partial, you know, there are some decisions and things that we can do to make ourselves more comfortable or to prolong our life or yep. to make it a healthier and we should. Yeah. And we should, right, right. It's like the, what's the prayer? The, the serenity the, the prayer. Serenity prayer. Um, you know, I, I keep coming back to that because I'm faced with a lot of that now with a lot of aging. aging. You know, what do I, how far do I go to make my body comfortable? And when do I just let it be the way it is? And, you know, and how do I even make those decisions? And I think it's, a, it's, it's sometimes very difficult. I find it very difficult. But of course, if be. you're clinging, you're suffering. So there's always kind of that criteria. So. I guess it points back to practice, you know, what would be the wise thing at this moment to support wisdom and compassion, to be wise and compassionate, which is not going to be the same for every person in every situation. Or for yeah. the same person. In every the same person in different situations. Yeah. Kate. Oh, um, I was just thinking there's like this irony about the form of the body and that, um, Often the idea is that feeling good or being balanced in the body is normal. And actually what is more normal is that there is affliction and there is pain. We kind of come into the world in pain. <laughs> and um, So, so it, it's an interesting perception, but, but I think um, I'm just looking at like a range of experiences, like, like people who are you know, um, born with a disease and obviously in pain or um, a lot of a lot of meditators I know talk about um, like th this this interesting thing like using meditation to help them deal with pain and like create space, but also like kind of really dealing with that also helps with practice. So it just always seems like um, some things that we think or that are that are entrenched in culture are are really useful when we reverse them <laughs> yes yeah yes um, many people who have been through painful periods of injury or illness or something uh, often if they've been able to um, meet them well through some kind of spiritual practice they feel grateful actually for the um, what it has brought in some ways can happen that way. Susan. Thanks. I, um, I kind of think <laughs> my case might be a little more extreme and yet I, I'm wondering if folks can relate with the second arrow aspect because often um, I'll, it'll bring up fear when I notice something not working in my body and um, then there'll be an anger response toward that fear and that'll cascade into my 
reacting from a place where I believe that it's my fault that I did this to myself. Yeah, all kinds of, I mean, the body is very intimately related with the mind, of course, and the fact that we're going to go on to other qualities that are mental also uh, in the remainder of this sutta. Um, and the, so let's, let's return to this very simple, potent phrase that the Buddha says is relevant to all these comments we've had. Form is non-self. If form were self, this form would not lead to affliction, and it would be possible to have it a form or to you know, say to my form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. So it's pointing right at what we live in denial of so often. And I think this is meant actually as um, not just something to read and sort of say, oh, yeah, that's right. Um, but actually as a practice, I mean, to, to sit for a moment um, sometime when it's quiet and really imagine internally, could I make my body be a certain way? I mean, in some ways, yes, I can feed it and then it's not hungry anymore, something like that. That's clear enough. But what about um, 10 years younger? Let's do it. Come on. <laughs> no, I can't do that. What about, uh, you know, um, change my height, my weight right now? Nope, <laughs> I don't have any control over that. And, you know, and to just sit, to just rest with what if I really wanted to be 10 years younger? I can't, I can't. <laughs> and so, and then we realize, oh, this is some, maybe we open to, this is some process that's happening. Um, this body is, I mean, how did it get to be this age? It's going to be a year older next year, regardless of anything that I want. <laughs> and and it's, it's really worth uh, resting with that and feeling that about, about the body, this thing that's the most intimate, the thing that we spend huge amounts of time paying attention to every day and doing things for every day. Um, and yet, in the end, it has its own course, and it's going to go it's going to go down that course. Um, there will be variations around based on the choices we make, as Bruce pointed to. Um, from day to day, yes, we can have an impact, but the overarching um, trajectory of the body is not in our control. And that's really worth sitting with. Um, and that was just the body. So his assertion is that means it's not you. You shouldn't have the idea that the body is is me, you know, is myself, um, and therefore stake, you know, all of your happiness. That's the implication. Don't stake all of your happiness on the body being a certain way. Now, certainly when the body gets, you know, into affliction, um, there's an, a mental effect of, of being, um, you know, unhappy about that in some way, at least for us, those of us who aren't fully enlightened, because uh, they're related. But the knowledge or the, even the sort of preliminary intellectual understanding that it's not about me uh, can help a lot. It can kind of help a lot to uh, not, get so, not be so stuck onto that. Okay, but that was only one out of five things that we identify with. Um, let's move on in the sutta. Um, there's a lot of uh, dot, dot, dots here. So we, we can read the other four, and then we'll talk about what they are. Would somebody go through the next one that starts with feeling? 
Dan. Feeling is non-self. Perception is non-self. Volitional formations are non-self. Consciousness is non-self. For if bhikkhus consciousness were self, this consciousness would not lead to affliction, and it would be possible to have it, and, and it would be possible to have it of consciousness. Let my consciousness be thus. Let my consciousness not be thus. But because consciousness is non-self, consciousness leads to affliction. And it is not possible to have it of consciousness. Let my consciousness be thus. Let my consciousness not be thus. Thanks. At least in my ear, your microphone got rather quiet at the end. Yeah, I see some other nods. So it might be fading in and out a little bit, but we didn't hear you. Um, thank you. Yeah, so these, um, this list of form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness, uh, what is that list? Aggregates. It's being gone through here. Aggregates. The five aggregates, yeah. Thanks, Dan. Um, so these are the areas where we tend to identify, and that's why they're singled out in the discourse on non-self. Um, so it's not that these are the only things that we would ever identify with, probably, but and other they're the only, some teachers make them out to be a complete description of experience. I'm not totally convinced of that, but they're close enough. Let's just say they're close enough and we won't quibble the details. Um, they're meant to cover a lot of territory. So we have form the body. That's a big part of experience, but there's also things going on in the mind which are what these other ones point to. So feeling refers to feeling tone, um, which it's Vedana. So that's pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And this is another prominent aspect of experience, even though we don't usually consciously think about it unless we start um, some kinds of spiritual practice. Buddhist practice points to it a lot. Um, but it's very um, prominent in that every experience we have has one of these three feeling tones to it. And we're very attached. We really want the pleasant and we really don't want the unpleasant. And if it's neutral, well, then it's not something we really need to worry about too much. So we tend to kind of ignore that one. Um, but it's very humbling to uh, start to look at feeling tone and um, realize how driven we are by it, how much what we're really doing is seeking something pleasant or seeking to get rid of something painful. And when we just bring that into consciousness, um, it helps a lot with being able to make decisions that aren't quite so driven. I'm distracted by watching Jill and Bruce's cat in the background. <laughs> it was up on the shelf earlier. <laughs> so, um, that's part of the form world, is the external form world. <laughs> it's also not self, just so you know. <laughs> um, but feeling tone is kind of built into um, our, into the, each moment of experience. And it, it's not quite, it's, it's not really a property of the object, which is what we tend to think it is. You know, oh, I think my, um, my homemade, this is made by a friend of mine, this mug, and he gave it to me and I like it a lot. Um, 
and so it has a pleasant feeling tone for me, but it's not really inherent in the mug. That's part something going on in my mind. Somebody else would look at this and say, God, that's really not a very good shape. He's obviously an amateur, <laughs> um, something like that. And so um, it's not in the object. It's really happening as an interaction between the mind and the object. Um, but we're very attached to that. And we will seek out uh, situations that are pleasant or avoid situations that are unpleasant. We'll rearrange our whole lives around things like, like this as if they were somehow inherently that way. Um, we have, as far, as far as the characteristic of self, we have things like fan clubs. Everybody who likes Star Trek, <laughs> you know, that's what unifies them. So Star Trek has a pleasant feeling tone for you. You can join a Star Trek fan club, and that would be an identification around a feeling tone. There's a lot of examples of this. And you can also tell by the fact that we get angry when our pleasant things are taken away, that yes, we were identifying with that feeling tone and attributing it to you know, something that we need to have. So humbling, but that's not self, because we can't really control it either. We can't, we can't have only the pleasant and not have any of the unpleasant. Um, and then we go on to perception which in this tradition is a very simple um, kind of label that we, by which we identify what something is. So we perceive that, um, you know, that my favorite example, that this is a cup, <laughs> but it doesn't have to be. It could be a, like a little thing for a tiny little potted plant or something else, but we're very attached to how we perceive the world. And that's some of what's coming out now in terms of our consciousness of how we um, perceive uh, particular cultural patterns. So, you know, I have certain perceptions when I walk into a room based on the fact that I'm comfortable in that room, say, because I'm white and everybody else there is white or something. Um, I would see different things in that room than a person of color might see when they walk into the room. So these are um, things that are, are actually conditioned and uh, come up based on those conditions. And as we start to explore, why is it that I perceive things a certain way or could it be perceived in a different way? We see that this isn't something that's not under our control completely. And also that we can't choose to have only pleasant associations with things. You know, that's just um, you know, pleasant perceptions of things. Questions about perception? It's not the same as the Western psychological perception, which is a much bigger idea. Um, that's more like volitional formations. Uh, there's some, sometimes some conflation between Buddhist psychology and Western psychology when similar terms are used. So perception happens to be one that's different, but it's in that realm. This, this sutta isn't really about analyzing all of these. I'm just doing it so that we know what the sutta is referring to. The sutta isn't about that. Um, and then we go on to volitional formations. So it's kind of interesting that things that are volitional, I mean, that refers to all the things that we put intention into, what we say, what we do, um, you know, even some of what we think. And it says, that's not self. Well, wait a minute, why are my volitions not self? Um, this can be explored. Remember, these are all supposed to be practices. Um, have you ever observed volition arising? Is that possible? Yeah, I see people nodding. 
It can through mindfulness practice. Like as you approach a door, you can feel you can feel the volition to put your hand toward the handle, for example. It's an automatic movement. If you're not paying attention, it'll just happen. It's not needed that you are consciously aware of it, but you can. You can stand before a door that you want to go through and the volition, the, the, the motivation to move the hand and open the door will arise. And you can choose um, not to obey it and sit there and watch it arise again and again. Um, and you can realize that, you know, it doesn't, it's actually not entirely you doing it. You don't sit there and say, now I'm going to intend to open the door. It actually just sort of kind of comes <laughs> because it's part of a sequence um, of body-mind unfolding. It's quite humbling to see that even our intentions are not completely under our control. They are somewhat. That's why people are accountable, but they are not completely. Very interesting. It's a good thing that lawyers don't know a lot about Buddhist practice because it kind of messes up some of the uh, precedents we have in the legal system <laughs> um, or the, the, the built-in assumptions in it. Um, yeah, I recommend watching Volition. It's quite interesting. But we identify with that a lot. I mean, we think that we've made all the choices in our lives, or sometimes we think other people have imposed choices on us and we, you know, we were made to do things. Um, and when we start examining this, a lot of that comes into question um, as to how much self there is there. And I'm not gonna get into the whole philosophical is there free will kind of thing. Um, I think volition is an experience and a lot that says most of what it is about it. <laughs> um, and if you don't, if you aren't aware that you have a choice about something you don't, that's probably true. But um, it's also not entirely, uh, not entirely us. Comments or questions? And it does lead to affliction for sure. These volitional formations. We've all done things that we regret. <laughs> so <laughs> there we go. Um, and then even consciousness, my gosh, even my consciousness is not my true self. Um, this is uh, an important one for ancient India and also maybe even for some of Western philosophy is whether or not the awareness um, that sees or that is associated with um, the senses, I should be careful about that. So the awareness that's associated with seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, um, even that that consciousness, the Buddha says, is not self. There's another sutta where a monk says that he, he the monk declares that consciousness is what gets reborn in the next round, and therefore essentially saying it's, it's a continual eternal thing that goes from life to life, which was a belief in the time in some of the Indian religions of that time. And the Buddha gives a really long discourse uh, to this monk um, explaining a dependent origination, explaining that consciousness is dependently arisen and is conditioned and is not uh, eternal. So even consciousness we cannot control. Um, you can actually see this. I mean, I'll just give the example I often give, which is that if right now in whatever building you're in, the fire alarm were to go off at this moment, um, you would be, your consciousness would be consumed by that. You would turn, you would have no choice, I think, but to hear that. Um, and so that you didn't have a choice. Your consciousness shifted from whatever you were paying attention to, to hearing consciousness. Um, 
There's no choice about that. And as you start to observe, you see that because of the choices we've made in the past about what we normally pay attention to, even what our consciousness goes to is conditioned by what we've done before. Uh, we will see or not see certain things. It's very strange. Um, in the sequence of dependent origination, do you guys remember what conditions consciousness? Bruce knows. Sankara. <laughs> yeah, sankaras, which are volitional formations. <laughs> Those condition consciousness. So the choices we've made in the past about what we pay attention to and what we do and what we speak and so forth conditions what, what our consciousness lands on. It's really amazing. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and there's another sutta that says that name and form, which is mentality and materiality, the sort of mind and body part of our experience, and consciousness condition each other. So consciousness conditions what we, it's almost a tautology, right? Consciousness conditions what it is in mind and body that we're aware of, of course, how could, that's what it does. And then mind and body, um, because they exist, they give, give rise to an awareness of that, of consciousness. Um, and so this gets into fairly deep philosophy that we're not going to get into. But in a few short lines, the Buddha has taken apart everything that is our, the main components of our experience, our body, our feeling tone, our thought patterns, and what, even our awareness, and said, none of this is the self. Any, any objections? Kurt, I don't know if you're objecting, but. <laughs> uh, well, uh, if I um, go get a bowl of ice cream because I, I want to enjoy it mm -hmm. and feel pleasant, mm -hmm. Um, is that also not self? The one who does that doesn't really exist. It's a conditioned sequence of patterns based on knowing how to do that, knowing that you think ice cream is pleasant, deciding at that moment to put energy into that, moving the body, going and getting it. All of that doesn't need your personal history, except in, you know, as, as a self, you know, except in the choices that you've made and the way that has unfolded. It, we feel like it's our self, and that's also a real feeling. This doesn't say you never feel like a self. Um, we do. The experience of self is real. It's a, it happens to be a volitional formation, <laughs> um, but it, and a perception. Those are kind of related. But um, so yeah, we we feel like we're a self, and it's true that if I get the ice cream that Kurt is talking about and I put it in my mouth, Kurt doesn't taste it. You know, it's. It, it's real, the, you know, there's only this set of the five aggregates is a unit that goes together. Um, there's another sutta in the Samyutta, by the way, it's just a little farther along um, in this very section that says, um, I wonder if I can find it. Yeah, it's number 94, um, which starts with the famous line, bhikkhus, I do not dispute with the world, rather it is the world that disputes with me. Very nice line by the Buddha. Um, but he goes on to say, I won't, we won't do the whole sutta, but I just want to read what it says at the beginning. Um, he says, of that which the wise in the world agree as not existing, I too say that it does not exist. And of that which the wise in the world agree upon as existing, 
I too say that it exists. So the Buddha doesn't say that nothing exists. He doesn't say that everything exists. He agrees with otherwise people that there are some things that exist and some that don't. And then he goes through. And what he says doesn't exist, just to summarize the sutta, is a permanently existing any one of the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, or consciousness. That, he says, does not exist. But, he says, as to what does exist, form, feeling, perception, mental formation, and consciousness. That's what he thinks exists. So, there we go. Val. So, you just used the word mental formations, which I've always thought of also, but here it says volitional formations. No, volitional formations. Thoughts and, thoughts and emotions are under that category under that category yeah i'm always i'm always trying to re, re, you know memorize these lists and it, that gets confusing when we switch the words are, so thoughts and feelings are in that category right mm -hmm. yeah thoughts and emotions yeah. so it's it's not just will it's the thoughts and the feelings well yeah but as we look as we if we do meditation practice we find that most of those a lot of those are actually volitional um, we don't feel like we've created something that came up um but uh at some level uh there was something that we wanted to it's very interesting i've watched my mind in uh, meditation on retreat and i've seen the sequence where there's an input some sensory input and something in my mind decides i'm going to be afraid of that and then fear arises <laughs> and it's like wow <laughs> that was intriguing and you know i'm just watching this unfold um, and so there is actually a little movement where the mind, and it's, it's partly because it's, it's habitual, you know, it's like, oh, that would be a nice, comfortable reaction. That's what I usually do in this situation. Um, so there is a little bit of volition there. Oh, oh, absolutely. I think yeah. so. Kurt's yeah. <laughs> like that doesn't mean that we want, though, that it's good for us to do that or that we, you know, would have chosen that if we had really been able to think about it. But it's, it, it, there is a little something in the mind. Because remember, volition is not self, so we don't have to take ownership of it. So the fact that there is a volition toward getting angry, for example, I don't have to say, oh, that means I'm an angry person. That means I wanted to do that. That means I hate that person. There's no I there. <laughs> Just there was a volition toward doing that. Susan. It, it can get confusing for me sometimes because I will find myself um, with the spoon in my mouth and then realize what's happening. Yes. Yes. It's amazing how mindfulness and awareness are not needed to get through. Well, many of us have probably had the experience of getting in the car to drive somewhere very familiar that we've driven many times. And the next time we wake up, we're pulling into the parking lot. It's like, wow, you know, drive the whole way without any mindfulness. Um, but there was other stuff happening. Attention was happening. Judgments were being made. Um, not by me, <laughs> clearly. Uh, it's interesting. It's interesting stuff. So none of this is to say that you don't exist. Remember, it says non-self. It doesn't say no self. It doesn't say illusory self, um, although there are other texts that refer to that. But it's... Um, it's just actually meant to relieve suffering is <laughs> so that we don't have to s sort of take this on as you know, a heavy, it will eternally be this way. It is ever thus. No, it could change. That was, remember the previous sutta was uh, the turning of the wheel was really pointing toward the characteristic of anicca, of impermanence, of things being changing. And that's the, um, that's the insight that Kondanya awoke to 
um, when he received the Dharma, when he realized it. This second one is really about not self. And um, the Buddha gave it to his ascetic companions because that was the one little thing that was holding on for them. They thought they had an eternal self because they had been practicing the sort of proto-Hindu practices in India at the time. And when he unhooked that for them through this discourse, they all became arahants. They all became completely awakened. That was the last thread for them. Um, for us, we may have a few other threads in place, and so hearing this doesn't quite do it for us. Um, and then the third discourse is really more about uh, suffering. So there you go, three characteristics in the first three suttas. But um, he then is going to explain, getting back to this one, 2259, he's going to explain why, he, you know, realizing that people might not just believe this offhand, he's going to give a little catechism about why uh, we can understand that things are not self. Um, so if you had objections, um, hang on, there's, uh, there's more coming. So would somebody like to read, what do you think is form permanent or impermanent? Um, Kurt, I saw your hand first. What do you think, Bhikkhus, is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir, is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir, is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir. Okay, so we'll stop there. So this is his... This is the Buddha's little logic sequence of how we can start to get a handle on this, just in case, you know, just hearing it as a declarative statement wasn't quite enough. Um, and this is something that I think we're going to have to work with for a while in practice. Um, but he, he tries to draw the analogy that things that are changing, which is everything, but things that are changing, um, so he first he says, is form an impermanent permanent or impermanent? So then we have to remember, oh, right, my body is not permanent. And that could mean you think about, you know, death sometime in the future, or it could be that you just notice right now, it's already changed in the last 47 minutes that we've been here together. Um, probably you're a little bit more tired in the position that you're sitting in. Some of you are starting to shift a little bit like me. Um, and, you know, we've gotten, we've burned a few more calories, so we might be getting a little hungry before lunch, something like that. Um, you know, things have, changes have happened. Breath has come in and out quite a number of times. So obviously it's impermanent. So then he says, aha, but is, what is impermanent, suffering or happiness? Mm -hmm. And so uh, for the most part, uh, we would agree that it's somewhat burdensome. So this is not suffering like it's terrible and painful, but it's something that, um, you know, wouldn't be a reliable form of happiness, let's say. And so the monks agree to that. And then he says, is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? So this is, he's now pointing to how it is that we think about something as a self. We might not have really looked very carefully at what, what we think, you know, what we think a self is. So this is mine, this I am, this is myself. So these are little phrases that we might have in the background. So this is mine, ownership of the body. You think you own your body. Yeah, 
most of us think we own our body at some level. But he says, what is it that you're owning if it's impermanent, first of all? And this is where we can use some of some Western science sometimes to good effect is there is no molecule in your body now that you had when you were born. I'm willing to assert that for all of our ages, even if there was some fluke molecule that lasted for a long time through the change outs of the cell and so forth. Um, I don't think there's anything left from our birth. So what is it that we own exactly? Um, and, and so on. So then this I am, that's a statement about uh, conceit, about thinking that I, um, yeah, that I am the body. It is, it's, it's a complete essence in and of itself. And then this is myself, so that's a slightly different phrasing, but that refers to a, a view, um, a view that the body should be the self. It's some kind of a philosophical idea. That's the difference between the second and the third. Um, they're a little bit subtle. So the it's said in um, the sequence of how we let go of things, we're going to let go of the idea first. So the last phrase, this is myself, and sort of the idea, the philosophy that my body is myself, that'll go before we still have, a, we might still have a sense that the body is um, is something that we, that we own in some way before, um, yeah, before we're fully awake. So those are slightly different shades of, of selfness, shall we say. Um, so then he says, he basically says that it's not logical that you would call this yourself. Like, what is it that you're calling yourself if it's something impermanent? So we may not be convinced by the logic, but we can still do this kind of in a, um, meditative way. And I encourage that is that you can sit in meditation and feel the way the body is in continual flux, breath coming in and out, the energy moving up and down, the body getting a little bit stiff and tired from sitting in one position. You have to pee after a while, you know, it's like, wow, this thing is, you know, there's really nothing here that's completely constant. You can even get deeper into meditation and feel the way the cells are changing and so forth. And then you can just start to ask, what, what is it that, I'm, that I would call myself among all this? Like, what can I point to that? Can I point to that? Very hard. The not finding is what not-self is about. I can't find it. So I encourage some practice with this. Um, and then he goes on to the other ones, feeling. Is feeling permanent or impermanent feeling tone? Well, that one's obviously impermanent. Has anything been pleasant or unpleasant continually for a long time? No. <laughs> and even if something is sort of an idea of pleasant, like it's always pleasant when I, I don't know, eat chocolate cake or something for the first time, whatever, you know, the first piece of that is. Um, okay, but even that, you don't have that experience all the time. You know, the cake only lasts however long it takes you to eat it. So in, a, in, in, in every sense, feeling is very highly impermanent. That one's easy to see. And, you know, can't be a source of ongoing happiness. I at least have not managed to achieve 100% uh, pleasant feeling in my life. I don't know about you, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't seem to work that way. So then we get to... Oh, any comments at this point? 
we're all being deconstructed. Okay, so then we have this, um, then he makes a declarative statement. Once the monks have agreed to this catechism that yes, okay, logically, I shouldn't be calling this myself. He says, therefore, any kind of form whatsoever, who would read that paragraph? I'll do it. Okay. Okay. Therefore, bhikkhus, any kind of form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all four should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Yeah. So then he just says to them, this can help you practice. So he gives a practice is to train our perception in the perception of not self or non-self. So this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And this is, I have actually found this to be very pragmatic. Um, you know, there are moments where something happens and the body is painful and I just think, this is not mine. <laughs> it's, you know, I still have to deal with that pain. I have to do, you know, do whatever um, needs to be done, but um, it's really helpful. <laughs> and also when, you know, in external things, you know, when uh, you drop your cup or whatever, cup is my thing today, um, it wasn't mine. It was already broken, as Ajahn Chah says, you know, for me, this cup is already broken. <laughs> and so, um, it's not really mine when I lose it or break it. Uh, it's very helpful. It just lightens things up. It doesn't change anything about the situation. Uh, the Dharma doesn't uh, make different things happen exactly. kind of does in the mind. It does in the mind. Um, but we can start to train ourselves in this perception that it's, uh, it's not all about me and it doesn't say something about me. And when we do the mental ones, um, that gets even more interesting. Like, what about uh, you're in a day when you're just irritated, you know, you wake up in the morning and it's just an aversive kind of mood in the mind and it's not our fault, <laughs> you know, we still have to deal with it and we have to probably be careful not to snap at our partner or whatever because we're feeling irritated because that's, you know, that's unkind to them. But uh, it's not our fault that that arose. It's not me. It doesn't make me an irritated person. It doesn't make me a bad partner. Um, it's really, really helpful to just on lightening things up. It allows us to deal with what's actually happening instead of getting caught up in the whole story about how did it get this way and why am I like this and how can I ever not ever have this again in the future? These are all forms of attaching to feeling or perception or mental formation and wanting it to what? May I have it of this? May it be thus? May it not be thus? <laughs> you know, we can't just command these things. Um, and so it's a nice, if held correctly, I think this teaching is a wonderful balance of um, still being responsible and doing our practice, but not, not being um, burdened by these things that come up in body and mind that are just conditioned, They're just conditioned. I'm not at all saying this is easy. You know, it's not as simple as you just read the sutta and then you say this phrase every time something happens. It's not that simple, but it can be really a helpful pointer. And it's a good training to do even when 
things are going pretty well to remind yourself now and then this too this happiness is not self it's not me i can't be eternally this way um that's a also you know we tend to think we're responsible for it also it's it's my creation that i got this um kurt um how does this fit in with accountability and responsibility yeah so if there's no self who inherits the results of karma or who is responsible if they if we do something unwholesome who's going to suffer for that and and should should people be held responsible for their actions so we have to be um this starts to point toward what do we think the self is if we think the self is an agent then the idea of not self will sound like unaccountability Let's let that sit for a minute. If we think that the self is an agent, then the idea of not self will, will sound in contrast to that, like non-agency. So either you're, you're subject to things or you're not responsible. You know, you can't be held accountable for things. A, a criminal could stand up and say, it wasn't me, it was some other person who did that. Um, and so I just point out that um, this, there can still be, um, there are still actions and results, even without, there's no need for a self to be there. There's no doubt that this mind stream, if you will, the flow of body and mind is going to inherit the results of the past conditions. Those come up. Um, so if, yeah, if I do something unwholesome, um, somebody else is going to get angry at me and my mind stream is going to experience them getting angry at me. It doesn't matter that that me refers to two different things. I did that and then they get angry at me. Those are two different kind of different beings in a sense, but they're also not different beings in a sense because they're linked by the mind stream between them. So we start to have to question, we start to see the self more as not as something that's non-existent, but as something that's fluid and fluxing and changing. Uh, through the actions that are done. We're more like a canoe paddler on a fast stream than a engineer of our life. Bruce. Yeah, one thing that was really helpful for me in, in an early practice when, uh, and, and I think I misunderstood it, I, I thought what was being said was no self. Uh, there right. is no self. And you know, I couldn't. What do you mean? I mean, I just that just I just it couldn't. Doesn't, it doesn't match with experience. Yeah, my, yeah, head around that at all. And then not self was better. And then when I started thinking, okay, what I think what they're really saying is that there's no permanent self, and there's no independent self. That that really helps me using that criteria too. That that this thing that we call a self is interdependent. It depends on you know what just happened three minutes ago. Or thirty seconds through all kinds of conditions. Yes. Yeah, and so so when when you start to think of the self in that way, this whole thing really makes complete sense. This whole yeah. Super, so, yeah. For some people, that's a good door to to put an adjective in there. So not permanent or not uh, independent can be helpful. Sometimes they say essential. Not there's no or essential. not essential. There is no essence. No. There's no soul. Okay, that's kind of, in, in the West, that's what Buddhism would speak to. Um, however, you know, the, like the other sutta I alluded to says, you know, these five aggregates nonetheless are flowing along, and so we do things with them. I think it's very worth 
actually getting uh, kind of specific, like, can you point at it? If you think there's a self at this moment, point to it. Tell me where it is. Uh, can, you, can you describe it? Can you feel it? And the Buddha is very clear that if we can't point to something or, or identify what that is in experience, it's, it's not something that can be called real or existing. And so uh, this not finding is really important. I know we're at time here, so I think we're going to have to finish up because there's some implications of this in the last part of the sutta. Um, yeah, so I think we're asked to really try to find it. Uh, and and then we, we can't. And it, it doesn't mean that your experience ends, but there's kind of, yeah, you can't find it as an independent or as a permanent entity. So um, if you're intrigued, you can kind of play with that this week in various ways. And we'll have to finish up the, um, the last part of this next time. And then we'll have to do something else. Should we, should we do the third sermon then <laughs> um, that the Buddha spoke? And then, okay. And then, so that, that's kind of the big, the main teachings are the first three sermons. We don't know what the fourth one was. Let's say it that way. And then there are just all the other ones. So we'll do the third one and I'll send a link to that. That's the uh, fire sermon. Okay. Any last comments before we or we'll wind up? Jill. You're muted. Oh, thank you. I read in Accessed Insight three different translations besides this. And I don't know if everyone has access to that, but I think it's really worthwhile. It's such a short sutta and the wording I think really makes a difference. And some of the words in this one were off-putting to me, especially the yes, word that we're going to get to that in the next yeah. session. And the other ones so. were very different and had a different tone. So I just think it's interesting to see and to experience if you... Okay. Yeah, thank it. you for that. Yeah, see if you can look up other translations if you're interested, especially for a difficult conceptual teaching. We might really need the words to be quite specific. So see how they go. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.